0: remembers that Pike Bubbles, Sunday Circus Song and Closing Time were the tracks on the Swedish version of the Cardigans album Life that were replaced by Poppy Affair on the international version. I'm Gareth Hirons and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember, and no one else ever seems to, is writer, broadcaster and TV's Claggers expert Tim Worthington. Tim, what are you up to and where can we find it?
1: Okay, well, what I'm going to ask is, if we talk about international versions of Cardigan's albums, this is before going to my preamble, have you ever heard Happy Meal 1? Because there is a Happy Meal 2 on First Band on the Moon. I know of the existence of Happy
0: Meal 1. I don't know if I've ever heard it.
1: Well, before we go too far into Cardigan's Law, <laughs> I should say what I'm up to. Well, obviously, I'm doing Looks Unfamiliar at the moment. I'm still flogging my previous book, The Larks Ascending, which is a history of comedy on BBC Radio 3. All kinds of people like Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Chris Morris, Armando Yanucci. And indeed, the people are so inclined, they can hear a podcast of me and you talking about it. Absolutely. Which obviously, I'll put a link to Up With This I'm also working on the sequel to my book, Top of the Box, which was about BBC Records and Tape singles. This time I'm doing the albums, and I can assure you all that the endless albums of Birdsong have not done me any psychological damage in any way whatsoever. And apart from that, I'm still recording lots of editions of Looks and Familiar. got a couple of other things on the go. A couple of bits of Doctor Who magazine, which should be out by the time this comes out. And I'm also working on the blog post being silly about UK 60s jazz album covers.
0: I'm sure that will go down an absolute treat.
1: <laughs> nice, as they <laughs> used to say when they were being hilarious.
0: And may I just say, it's an honour to take the reins again for the show's Golden Jubilee. But now, without further ado, let's get into your first pick. I'm not sure I have the words to describe that. So, Tim, what did we witness there? That was a theme from Stop
1: Go, which is a BBC lunchtime children's show from... Now, I thought it was 1981, but I did watch the end credits of it in preparation for this. I and mean, the database has been 1982. They sort of reinvented the what was previously watched as Mother Slot around the early 80s, and they brought in things like... There were a lot of machinery-based ones, because there was choc block there was obviously Pigeon Street, which had a lot of characters like Long Distance Clara, and there was this, which was documentaries about things like hovercrafts, ferries, a fairground in one of them, and about, you know, the the polite and genial young men who operated the rides. I think it was all, they didn't really interact with the people in them. It was all narrated by, I think it was Ben Thomas, who was one of the Play School presenters around that point. And the thing was, I shouldn't really have seen this, because I'd long since started school and should have long since stopped watching anything in that slot, but it's the thing of having younger siblings. It was all in the background when I was, you know, ostensibly keeping an eye on, but actually doing other stuff. I saw all these things, you know, like King Rollo and so on, just in the background. I didn't take that much notice of them. Stop Go was one I don't think I paid any attention to at all, but it kind of burned itself into my brain because of that theme song, that kind of, that weird sort of soft rock, electric, piano, wah, body form thing that you just heard. And also, it was kind of at a sort of dizzying pace. It was very gaudy. The opening titles were particularly gaudy, even though it was all that grainy, washed-out, early 80s, 60mm. It was like the outdoors bit of Only Fools and Horses. It was exactly, you know, like when Dell and Rodney are like meeting somebody in the market. And the other thing was, it was part of the relaunch of that slot of Seesaw which is introduced by a slide of a really stylized seesaw with characters from the programmes really badly cut out like storybooks and stuck on them. Now the Stop Go, which incidentally was paired with Graham, which is the little-remembered follow-on to Postman part about a grandmother who did things like join the army and hunted ghosts. I don't think she really hunted ghosts, but that's always been what me and Ben Baker have decided <laughs> to happen, did it? Um, which also have David Bowie's Never Let Me Down as a theme music. For ones that they didn't have any readily sort of identifiable things that you could put on the Seesaw book. because obviously you couldn't have Ben Thomas on one side, you know, a photograph of him and an HGV vehicle on the other. <laughs> they just had the stop and go sign for the opening titles Balancing on the
0: Seesaw. That's the very definition of that'll do.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean it wasn't the worst seesaw slide by any stretch of imagination, but it was right up there.
0: I must say, this particular show has uh, has slipped my mind. Uh, Block, definitely know that. Pigeon Street, I still still remember some of the songs from Pigeon Street. But Stop Go, I, I can't seem to put my, my mind on. Obviously, in my research, I found out it was part of Seesaw. But yeah, it's, it's not coming back to me. When I looked it up, it did say that Ben Thomas, who is obviously the one from Play School, uh, was on there. It also said that Lola Young was on. And I don't know if you remember that. What?
1: Lola Young, now Baroness Young of Hornsey from TV's Metal Mickey? But yeah. do you think it was her singing
0: Stop Body Form Go? <laughs> we can only hope. At least it wasn't Metal Mickey singing it. Um,
1: <laughs> so then, uh, I, oh, at least she wasn't singing Metal Mickey by Swain <laughs> About ten years before it came
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess the main question we have to ask about this is, uh, do you have any theories on why this one has, has slipped the net and uh, others uh, from Seesaw are more well-remembered?
1: Yeah, because I think it's to do with, I mean, the fact that it is like a play school window film extended to programme length. I think people think kids like things like that. They think they like documentary strands and they don't really. I'd liken it to on Swap Shop, you know, when John Craven would say let's have a look at some of Britain's disappearing wildlife. And we'd all immediately turn over to Tiz was, that was, was we, we preferred Swap Shop, but that was the cue to turn over. I think people think kids are more excited about I know. Some of them are. Some of them love that kind of thing. But the majority want to see cartoons, really, and probably... But imagine many of them kind of paid about as much to just stop go as I did.
0: It's a format that did seem to come back in a fair few different sort of tweaked ways. Like sometimes they'd send a presenter or a puppet along to the place to, <laughs> to interview... <laughs> uh, well,
1: I like would Dick and Dom sent next door's car to Stoke on Trent.
0: <laughs> but yeah, to, to interview somebody on site and kind mm. of, you know, try and bring it to life a bit more. And I yeah, think that's a, yeah. That's a bit more engaging than the ones that are just footage. It
1: is and it isn't, because I remember on, now I can't remember for certain which BBC Saturday morning show this was in the mid-80s. I have a feeling it might be one of the many variants of the Saturday picture show. I was discussing this with Paul Kirkley, but there's an interminable sequence where I think it was Charlotte Hindle walking on the beach in Skegness with somebody in the big foam Skegness's bracing costume, you know, that skipping Fisherman or whatever it is having a long conversation about Skegness I remember thinking this is a poor excuse for television it's a poor excuse for television on a Saturday morning you know when they put all the junk that they can't show at other times of the week before the Saturday programme start. it's kind of time have got kissy fur in and droids yeah. <laughs> not gloss over that.
0: The last thing you want at that time is realism and nowhere brings realism like (laughs) Skegness
1: or droids
0: (laughs) but yeah the thing is I mean it's forgotten to the extent
1: of for years and years there was no evidence of it out there I think for a long time the only mention of it on the entire internet was the TV cream entry and that was from so long ago that I looked it up while I was preparing for this I can't tell whether that was me, Phil Norman, or Steve Berry who wrote that. It is that long ago, and it's only recently bits started turning up on YouTube before other things that people had uploaded. Like it wasn't at the end of the tape; it was at the start of the tape, <laughs> just the end of it. But a couple of editions have turned up recently, and the weird thing about them is that the picture is really battered on an old VHS, but the sound is fine. Huh. It doesn't warble. I can't figure that out. <laughs> it's maybe maybe, maybe it does an episode
0: where they explain how to use your tracking properly. <laughs> let's face it we all needed that back in the day (laughs) so now let's go from stopping and going to jumping or body forming to body popping if you will uh, with a hip-hop phenomenon of times gone by. Hey, yo, the real scoop, homie, loke Dumb fools around my way getting the gun smoke And I ain't talking about the highlight like endo The kind of how to make you call your king, folks And tell Mo' Johnny's dead A 14-year-old kid put a nod to his head All because he wanted that gear he was spoken Give me that, why you had to give me them Jonas Johnny tried to jump Homie, what's in here in that? Johnny tried to run, got get it in the back. Now tell me what happens to the way things used to be. Cause if this way, there will be no future, G. What will all y'all learn? That if you play a five too long, you're bound to get burned. This ain't a small thing I'm addressing. It's a big thing. Take it from the daddy as a lesson. G. If I'm not mistaken, those are the dulcet tones of the Mac Daddy and the Daddy Mac. But Tim, why so serious?
1: Yeah, this is It's a Shame by Crisscross, Cross, the third single after Obviously Jump and Warm It Up, which nobody remembers, but I think was a top 10 hit. This was the third one, and weirdly, it was like the proper serious one, and I don't think it charted very highly at all. I think it might have scraped the top 40. It's a shame, because I think it's a tremendous record. I get quite annoyed that there's this idea now that Crisscross Cross were, you know, a throwaway novelty act and that there was an adult manipulating these two young boys. It's not strictly true. Their records were... They sound quite credible, even though it's kids' rap. And there have been kids' rappers before that. There were quite a few in the 80s, you know, who aren't treated with the same disdain now. Their songwriter and manager, Jermaine Dupri, I think he was only about 19 himself at the time. That wasn't some of the exploits, they were a proper band, they performed with Cypress Hill and Tim Dogg and people like that, and they were taken quite seriously at first. They did do a single called I Missed That Bus, which is possibly the worst idea anyone could have come up with, but this was their attempt at actually addressing what, it was quite, in a sense, new to us over here, I mean obviously there'd been gang violence in America since the late 70s, but... The news media wasn't as pervasive then. It wasn't trying to scare us all all the time. Things took longer to come over. It was only really with things like Straight Outta Compton, Boys in the Hood, and so on that we were aware that, you know, there were a lot of young men in black America just being drawn into this pointless cycle of violence, fighting over almost nothing, really, and shooting each other. And this is quite a savage record about it, except for the fact... But, you know, you've, they've got these blistering verses where they decide to call the major socio cultural issue facing black America in the late 20th century a
0: shame. <laughs> yeah, uh, they it, might
1: have meant it brings shame or anything, but it didn't really travel that way as a song.
0: It undercuts the message mm. somewhat there are good ways to express shame even using that one word any game of thrones watchers will probably uh, go straight to a a certain there's less shame as mentioned in the simpsons absolutely and shame by smash obviously (laughs) it doesn't seem to have hit home in this uh in this instance so this is as as you said the least successful of and i think there was four singles released in the Mm. u.s and this was the fourth from from their debut album totally crossed out and the previous single in the US was I Missed the Bus. Mm. Uh, so it's quite the thematic leap to take from that to gang violence. And I wonder whether that's why this didn't do as well. Do you think it was too much of a jump for the audience to take? Or do you think people were just a bit bored of Crisscross by this point?
1: I think it was... Both of those, but also a third thing, which is there were quite a few things in bits of the lyrics, and particularly the video, that undermined it further. I mean, the lyrics, you got things like, tell them Johnny's dead, a 14-year-old put a nine to his head, and without it, there ain't no future G. It's all quite bleak, but there's a bit where they appear to blame gang violence on
0: Pac-Man. Yes. Genuinely, <laughs> I, I absolutely noticed this. Uh, an offhand examination of the lyrics shows that Pac-Man somehow gets dragged into this. Yeah, don't anyone be bringing Pac-Man into <laughs> this? I know he's got a problem with the pills, but I don't think he needs to needs to gat anyone to get them.
1: That's also in the third verse. They like take on the gang members directly, basically saying you're setting a terrible example to children be aware of what you're doing and where. You know, they are actually saying all that, but there's a bit where he says, when I walk to school, i would be watching you. And somebody playing a gang member goes, word! Most <laughs> ridiculous voice imaginable. Was it Mr. Ed? <laughs> <laughs> he was right in the thick of it. There's also the video, which sadly isn't online at the moment. It seems to have been taken down from YouTube due to a copyright claim, but not uploaded on the crisscross Vivo. It's really odd because it's got them in the middle of the hood with like sort of grainy black and white shots of kids chasing each other with guns and police car windows smashed in and so on. But again, it's got adults playing a gang who are seen bobbing their heads in times of the music, which I'm sure all the menacing, threatening types on corners actually did. (laughs) And at the end, one by one, they all disappear in times of the repeated it's a shame. You know, it's a camera flash, and then one of them will be gone. A bit like the reverse of like the start of the Sullivans. <laughs> but I can't work out the symbolism there. Should we call Roland Bath? I don't know what they were trying to say. So that overstated video and the silly bits in the lyrics, I think, did for it, which is, ironically, a shame.
0: Yes, that, that's the real shame here. <laughs> Jermaine Dupree, of course, would uh, later go on to work with Mariah Carey, Usher, and Destiny's Child so it was all downhill from Chris Cross, really um, <laughs> you, you, you're quite never right hit the heights if I missed a bus again I think they have sort of retrospectively kept a little bit of their cultural cachet because Jump still mm. comes on and still, still tears it up you know even in, in serious sort of dance and hip-hop clubs that's considered to be a good song because it is a good mm. song
1: I think it sounds fantastic Jump It's really hard record. It's not their fault that everyone else started sampling I Want You Back immediately after that. You know, everyone from Naughty By Nature who were good to PJ and Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) Who were PJ and Duncan. Yes. And it's not their fault they were young and making records. I mean, there were people making much worse records around then. If you ever go through a top 40 from around that time, you'll hear lazy dance records where they've just sampled a bit from an advert or... Bit of an old kids' TV theme. It's like Musical Youth, really. They were a good, credible band. And, you know, if anyone wants to snigger at them, I ask you to go and listen to Mash It, the youth Mash It Man from, I think, their second album, which is right out there, or the Peel Session they did. I think another problem, though, I'll be careful I'll say this, was they got sucked into the whole Michael Jackson thing. He had them in the video for Jam. I think you might have talked about collaborating with them irrespective of what, you know, people might have to read into that retrospectively, when you get sucked into that showbiz world, your credibility goes just like that.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, did people have much respect for Slash after you played on Jam? No <laughs> wonder he went and formed a Snake Pit, you know, to, to get some credibility back by being unlistenable.
0: <laughs> no amount of snake pitting will get that stink off, I can tell you that much. So, I think what we can take away from that is that we can safely say that Crisscross didn't halt the rise of gang violence. No, they didn't. Which is a shame. But next up is a character who could certainly put a dent in it. Look! Up on the building! It's Spider Woman! This is Jessica Drew, who as a child, while visiting her father's laboratory, was bitten by a poisonous spider. Forced to try an untested spider serum, Dr. Drew not only saved his daughter's life, but unknowingly gave her incredible spider-like powers. Dedicated to fighting evil, while weaving her web of justice, it's Spider-Woman. spider is tingling so i'd best take my pills and have a lie down but tim perhaps you can tell us what that was in the meantime yeah that was the opening narration from spider woman
1: 1979 i think it was the patty freeling series we got it over here i think about 1981 marvel in the late 70s belatedly caught on to feminism and there are some issues now around the way Some storylines were portrayed with some of these characters, we'll come back to in a bit, but they did go out of their way to create what, for the time, were strong female characters. That's when Captain Marvel and Ms Marvel, as she was then, first appeared. She-Hulk. Dazzler, who nobody remembers, who was a disco dancer who could like hold her own against men, sort of, emotionally and physically. Oh, I remember um, Dazzler, yeah. yeah.
0: I had the misfortune to be introduced during the Dark Phoenix arc. Oh, uh, so everyone, no. everyone forgot she was a thing.
1: Proper Dazzler when she actually sang. That's what I'll
0: have. <laughs> I
1: think they tried to turn him into pink these days, haven't they? And there's also, there was Monica Rambeau who went through a number of names. I think she eventually settled on Photon, didn't she? There was also Spider-Woman. There are some stories that the creation of Spider-Woman was hastened by. Apparently there was a filmation series called Web Woman which is only, there's only very bad rips off on the internet I don't know how true that is, that could be something fans are taking the ball and run with but I think the time was right for there to be a Spider Woman. Bits bit of this would change for the cartoon but basically Jessica Drew was from, I think she's from I did the late 19th or early 20th century and she'd been I don't know how all this uranium got into London, but she's exposed to uranium as a child and she was given an experimental treatment based on the spider serum, which sort of roundabout long story, but she got knocked into suspended animation and was reawoken in the present day. And I think the early comics are actually set in London. Because it's got the interesting about not just her being a super-powered woman, because obviously she got spidery powers from that serum and all the uranium in a man's world, but adjusting to a very changed world while trying not to let on to anyone as well. I mean, she wasn't a clone of Spider-Man. She had slightly different powers. Superhuman strength, she could fly, which Spider-Man couldn't. I think it was limited flying, but she could do it pheromone secretion, which didn't feature in the cartoon very (laughs) (laughs)
0: heavily.
1: She could get one over on men that way. Crawl up walls. I think she fired energy blasts as well, but they gave her extra powers in this cartoon, which was really quick out of the traps. I think the comic was only about 18 months old when the cartoon was optioned. And it was really interesting, because I hadn't seen Spider-Woman at that point. It was quite rare to get a Marvel comic. It was a big thing and I used to read them from cover to cover again and again, even if it was the middle of a story, like you know, you get an Avengers where it'd be mid adventure and you know, you it end with a cliffhanger, you think, What Hawkeye I going to do? And you might never find out he is so you've got the internet. And, you know, I would get Fantastic Four ones sometimes, Spider-Man. You didn't really tend to... Because they were bought for you by relatives and so on, they were feeling generous, and they didn't go for the obscure characters. So you get... I've never forgotten the feeling of... You know, don't get me wrong, I love Thor now. I did not understand Thor when I was a five-year-old, especially because mm. they talked in ancient Norse a lot. And someone them say, "Oh, I've got you on the superhero comics," be thinking, "Yes, yes." And they put it album and it was Thor. I think, oh, <laughs> great! <laughs> Spider Woman just sort of appeared from nowhere. in It was when they revamped Children's i t v in the Watch It slot, which again we discussed on here a couple of shows ago with Melanie Williams, where they tried to make it new and more relevant, more contemporary. And obviously, there was this dashing new cartoon series from America that they bought in. I remember feeling quite strange because that was around the time the 60s Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can, was still in heavy rotation. And they pulled that out of the schedules to put Spider-Woman on. And it was kind of a bit like how I felt about... I am convinced people hating Scrappy-Doo came later. I remember girls in school saying he was cute and lots of people going, puppy power. My thought was... Why did they never show the old ones again? What's happened to the mystery machine? And it was kind of like that with Spider-Man and Spider-Woman. But I loved Spider-Woman. I thought it was brilliant. Only years later did I find out how toned down it had been. That original comic, it's not for kids. It is aimed at teenage girls at the youngest... There are all kinds of elements in it. Like She fights a lot of occult villains. There's a lot of stuff like there was in all these female character comics about sexual politics. Not always well explored. I mean, it's a very controversial Ms. Marvel one involving mind control and we will just leave it there. I'm dealing with the emotional fallout from that, which I don't think was brutally handled. But sometimes Spider-Woman got a bit near the knuckle and it wasn't much evidence in this series.
0: I did read in my uh, research that, yeah, the occult elements were taken out, which obviously makes a lot of sense given the target audience for a tea-time cartoon. But also, Jessica Drew was a journalist in this. Yes. kind of makes her the, the She-Ra to Peter Parker's He-Man. In fact, I should say the Princess Adora to his Prince Adam and I I think that must have been a deliberate move to give people something that they were familiar with something to sort of latch onto and go look it is basically Spider-Man but a woman
1: I think so, and they gave her extra powers as well, and remember there being spider telepathy, which I don't think she had in the comics, and spiders not telepathic as far as I'm aware. There was a spider bubble that she could generate around herself, again, I don't remember that being a comic book thing. I'm very hazy on this, it's very hard to find any episodes online, but I think she spun round like Wonder Woman and changed into a costume rather than changing in the women's toilets, as, you know, <laughs> would have happened in the comic.
0: Yeah, that wouldn't be out of... Uh out of style for this and I think I can see them wanting to use because it does seem like they've, they've tried to co-opt as many elements as possible mm. from things that people will find familiar to make a, a sanitised version of Spider-Woman for the screen
1: and the other thing about it is that there's very little you know it's nothing like there were a few Marvel things in production around then, but different people own the rights to them So it was nothing like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There was very little crossover. I mean, there was a Fantastic Four cartoon around that time where I don't think they faced many comic villains in it. They also didn't have the Human Torch. They had Herbie the Robot because the Human Torch being option for a live action TV show was never made. Obviously, there was the Spider Man live action series, which I think was in production at the same time as this. There was was a Doctor Strange pilot, there was a Captain America pilot. So they didn't all cross over. The only villain from the comics I remember seeing in the cartoon was the Kingpin. Not like he appears in the Daredevil TV series, and you know, not the complicated, misunderstood man who wants to do good by doing evil and regenerate a city by destroying it. Nothing like that going on at the moment, is there? But just as the the one dimensional
0: comic Kingpin, this <laughs> massive bloke in a white suit. Apparently Dormammu also appeared. Oh, okay. And there were a couple of guest appearances from Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, I um, think they were sort of cameos, weren't they? they? were like, hey, keep off my walls.
0: A lot of the episodes, seems there seems to have been 16 episodes made, and a lot of them have very generic uh, enemy descriptions. Mm. In One of them mentioned, wookiee like creatures. <laughs> so, there we go. But then again, Star Wars would have been out not yes, long before yes, Sorry, yeah. A New Hope, Jesus Christ. Uh, wouldn't have been out long before then. So I guess that would have been in vogue I just want to draw your attention as well to episode 10, Dracula's Revenge. The, the description of that was the world's population are being threatened with being turned into vampires, werewolves, and Frankenstein's monsters. Not Frankensteins. No, no. Or Frankingsteins,
1: <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> what, is is Skeleton involved anywhere? No,
0: no Skeletons. Very disappointed. But yeah, Spider Woman discovers that Dracula is behind this. So, um... How is it his revenge? What, <laughs> what is the revenge, and who is it on? Well, everyone by the yeah, looks of it. Yeah,
1: but it's not revenge because that is an attack. What did they do to him to make it revenge? <laughs> That's nonsense. Did she fight Godzilla in any of them? I don't think so. So there no. wasn't a cameo from Brock?
0: There, there wasn't, which which just speaks to his non-canonicity, really. <laughs> just to uh, derail that trade of thought for you, do you have any theories on why more episodes of this weren't made? Is it, is it just the production style of the time? Or do you think it didn't catch on?
1: I think it didn't catch on, really. I think it was one of those many things where, in America, particularly around then, if something wasn't successful, they wouldn't even show all of it. Whereas we get all of it over here, like we got all of Nearly Departed with Eric Eiffel. We got all of, as I call it, Marshall The Chronicles, because that's what the opening (laughs) title said. There were so many programs where we saw more of it in America, and I think we probably did with this as well. I think it didn't catch on. Probably they didn't get a merchandising deal, because I don't remember seeing any merchandise based on it. They weren't making the right kind of money out of it.
0: Well, not long after, it was Secret Wars in the comics, and Secret Wars introduced a completely different Spider-Woman. Yes. uh, Who was in the the Venom-style outfit, but with blonde hair. And definitely wasn't Jessica Drew.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Although Jessica has come back in later years. And apparently, what later became Jessica Jones was originally a vehicle for Jessica Drew. And halfway through planning, they thought, we need to make this a new character. But they do share some characteristic similarities.
0: Definitely. And
1: some abilities as well. But it's just weird that it's something that, for me, it was something I watched every week and I looked forward to. I remember being in school and thinking, oh, it's Spider-Woman today. And it's even more gone from history than the live-action Spider-Man, which I've got my own story about that. There was an episode of it. Again, you know, you couldn't get hold of stuff in those days if it wasn't on. There was an episode listed in TV Times called The Deadly Dust. I can't remember exactly what the TV Times synopsis said, but I remember thinking all week... That's going to be brilliant, that. I can't wait to see what Nicholas Hammond in that dreadful Spider-Man costume does to defeat the deadly dust. And then they took it off because there was a chemical leak on the news that day and they never rescheduled it. Ah. And I, one of the first things I ever looked up on the internet was the deadly dust to find out <laughs> what happened in it. I think Spider Woman may even be out on DVD, but it's that far under the radar that I've never come across it.
0: No, I've certainly never seen mm-hmm. it. Well, one to keep an eye out for then. <laughs> and we're staying in the animal kingdom for your next choice. <laughs> Heard that before I researched it. So, Tim, what did we hear there?
1: That was a bit of. This is the sort of title that would have given Gary Davis Nightmares had it trouble the top 40. I Wanted to See You to See If I Wanted You by Moose, who were uh, an early 90s band that I think possibly only the members of Moose remember now. Who, bearing a bit of potted history here, because it leads into why I've chosen it, they kind of emerged, they were part of the whole same scene as Blur and Slow Dive and Ride. They started off. They were a good sort of shoegazing band, but they weren't that distinguished, really. But I think what galvanised them into action was, obviously, when Nirvana and Grunge came from nowhere in 1991, I think a lot of people looked at the career options over here and thought, we've got to do something a bit different. Because if you look at Around Them, which I may come back to in a minute, lots of bands reacted in different ways to try and make themselves relevant and different to what was going on. Obviously for some people like Suede, it worked. I think they hit on the magic formula. Moose went in a completely different way. It was like they'd obviously been listening to Tim Buckley, Gram Parsons, people like that, but they put a very British twist on it. It was like going on a tour of the old west, but it's the old west of England. <laughs> 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 it's a bit like that Comic Street Presents film with Fifth Full of Travelers' checks. It's like that Anglicised view of, you know, Spaghetti West and so on. But they did an amazing album called XYZ for Hutt Records, which is Virgin Records' indie imprint, led off by a brilliant single called Little Bird Are You Happy In Your Cage, which Mark Goodyear in particular played that non-stop. I think he may even, the first day he got it, he didn't quite do Mark Radcliffe and play it twice in succession, but he played it twice in the one show. And that didn't take off for some reason, and the album didn't take off. And I think they were dropped by Hutt between the single and the album. Like, you know, who knew whether they were going to score a breakthrough or not? They refused to give up, and they went even further into this kind of southern fried fish and chips sound, as I call it. You know, <laughs> loads of steel guitars, country twang vocals and so on. But they did a couple of singles, and I think this was one of the ones that was on their own label, Cool Badge, while they looked for another deal. And it was the Liquid Makeup EP in sort of late 1993, and this was the lead track of it, I wanted to see you to see if I wanted you. This came out just when I started university, and at that point, because, you know, Britpop hadn't really. Modern Life is Rubbish was out, and Suede had a few hits. It wasn't really gathering momentum, I think. they would only just been that issue with Select, with Brett Anderson on the cover. Most of the bands involved in that feature did not have Britpop-related success, but, you know, Moose was still quite a big prospect. And I remember the first couple of months when I was at university, this was constantly played in the student union, I remember girls dancing to it with Stetsons on and it was a huge thing and then suddenly a couple of months later I think it was particularly the appearance of Parklife and Supersonic that did for bands like this It was as though it had never existed and the thing was I'd only had the album this was on, Honey Bee, on cassette Because obviously I was a student at that point, I couldn't afford the CD of it Years later I thought I'd better upgrade that to CD It was going for £60. It's since been reissued, but just before it was reissued, amazingly, the Oxfam on Bold Street, it was in there for 99 (laughs) pence, and I was almost like, I am told by the person who's with me at the time, there was a cloud of dust where (laughs) I had been, and I was already at the counter paying for it. But I, I love that whole album. It's got great stuff on it, like Uptown Invisible. And there were so many things that almost could have happened inside the Britpop. There were bands like Thousand Yard Stare who kept the kind of indie jungle sound, but they were quite laddie. They went on about football. They even did songs about football. They were adorable. Who basically took the grunge sound, made it a bit more Jesus and Mary Chain, and acted like they acted like they were pop stars already. I mean, I remember Peter, the lead singer, you know, it was seen as quite a thing that he actually, he didn't hide his eyes from the audience, he was like staring into girls' eyes, like, like kind of, yeah, I fancy her. her head. who he tried to be more sort of like, like a monkey's or Hard Day's Night style proposition, and the press didn't really like them for various reasons, of course the USM didn't like them either. I believe Remy So Far So Good was actually written as an attack on her head. The only ones who nearly got it right were Kud. Who they anticipated things like TFI Friday with a sense of humor. They were very sort of they were quite closely associated with Vic and Bob I think they mentioned them in Big Night Out actually, and they are also in Papa Doodle Dandy, the Vic and Bob pop show pilot that never made it to a series but they also, they were very you know, they dug out a lot of retro fashions were very fond of the loud shirts, they went on about musicals like Her a lot and they were ahead of their time, they sort of saw what was coming but they didn't quite get it, I think there was only really Rich and Strange that it was a hit, which is the one everyone knows, but equally there was this thing Moose were doing and I don't think anyone else really Followed them down that path. It's a fascinating what if to think about, you know, what if somehow this had been reissued and had become a huge hit? How would things have played out differently?
0: We'll probably discuss this uh, with another of your choices later, but kind of 92, 93, and early 94 it was a fascinating time for uh, independent music, particularly in Britain. America had had that nirvana moment where everybody on the alternative side got behind one sound that pressed into the mainstream so Nevada Soundgarden I was about to say Pearl Jam I'm going to withdraw Pearl Jam and add Alice in Chains to that because I'm about to say all bands that I liked Pearl Jam not amongst <laughs> them but all very much of a, of a similar a mm. similar cloth they had to sound a certain way to get the promotion that they had that's why they came to my attention yeah. same thing then in, in 94 this all crystallises for Blur and Oasis to a lesser extent Suede and Pulp mm. and there's suddenly one not exactly one But kind of a couple of ways in which you have to make music to get big as an indie Mm. act. And before then, like you say, with this, all kinds of different directions. yeah, All kinds of roads not travelled by other bands. Everybody doing their own thing, seeing what worked.
1: And also, I think it's true that up until Britpop, we didn't really have that kind of tribalism in indie music. You know, people like what they like, they're often quite transient about it as well, in a really horribly self-conscious way. I mean, I remember one of the things I found really funny about student grant in Viz was one of his friends who was in the background had a t-shirt that would say things like Nirvana brackets after lunch curve. <laughs> people were very fickle about things like that. There was an attitude of, oh, you don't still like them, do you? You know, when I remember people being like that about Blur when Blur reappeared, because I hadn't given up on I loved Blur from the second I first heard them, which was it was actually I Know rather than She's So High, the AA side. And I still love that first album. I don't care how people knock it now. Pop Scene is probably my favourite single ever. I was aware of all the trouble they had making the second album and all the various rejected attempts at it. I couldn't wait to hear Modern Like is rubbish. So I remember people openly like laughing and saying, God, you don't seem like them, do you? We like Stereo Lab now. I'm like, Oh, I like Lab as well <laughs> so I still quite want to hear the new Blur album.
0: So it looks like Moose disappeared in the mid 90s possibly mm. more label trouble but actually came back around 99, 2000 with a new album and I'm guessing that sank without a trace as well.
1: Yeah I think they never quite I believe they were very successful in obviously Japan where everyone was successful yeah. I think even you had hits in Japan. I mean Whiteout
0: <laughs> were big in Japan at one stage. Massive! So, Do you uh... remember that feature on them in Select? There was Screaming girls in that. I do. That, that's why I know that. Certainly not from listening to White House. Although
1: Moose, the actual member of Moose called Moose, Moose McKillop, is now in Peroshka.
0: Ah, right. Well, I was going to ask if any of them had gone on to anything. The others, particularly Russell Yates,
1: the vocalist, who I thought was brilliant, never seemed to do very much else. It's just that odd thing about it was something that was absolutely huge in a very short time. Admittedly with a certain audience, with a certain sector of the record buying audience as well. Soda Oasis at first. It's just odd that, like Whiteout, he just mentioned,
0: it might as well have never existed. The fate of all bands below a certain level, <laughs> especially Wheeler 18. Mm. And now from I wanted to see you to see if I wanted you to something that if you saw it, you wouldn't want it. <laughs> Clip was I, I, I hope it was something suitably swashbuckling. What did it represent in that context?
1: Okay, well that was a theme from Ski Boy, which I think is the only program not mentioned in the ITV Encyclopedia of Adventure. That is an even more unwieldy title than I wanted to see you to see if I wanted you. But this book was my absolute bible in the late eighties. I think it came out in nineteen eighty seven. It was actually published by TV Times Books. He used to do all kinds of eccentric books. I don't know if anyone's ever done a list of them. But I bet it would be absolutely baffling. But they brought out this book written by a guy called Dave Rogers. Who'd written a couple of books about the making of the Avengers and the Professionals. And he really knew his stuff. And he'd somehow convinced them to let him do a book full of episode guides. Basically every action serial ever made by ITV. So everything from, literally from Ace of Wands to Zodiac. It was that comprehensive, apart from Ski Boy, you somehow got missed out. I think there are a couple of other omissions I've noticed over the years, but what a staggering amount of work to have done in the pre internet days because I don't even think he will have remembered them all himself. <laughs> Covered everything from obviously The Prisoner, Randall Hocker deceased, to things like things I'd never heard of at that point, like Orlando, which was a Sam Kidd thing where he had a magic amulet, Free Wheelers, the bullshitters the comics strip presents professionals send up is in there. It blew my mind. It was all this stuff that, in those days, I thought I'd never get to see. And if you look slightly to your right, you can probably see most of the shows on those shelves.
0: Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Sky
1: right. and time Slip are certainly very visible
0: there. Now, I hesitated to look to my right there because I've seen the cover of this book mm. and it's one of the most startling things I've ever seen. It's incredibly stark and yet also too busy. There's this kind of... Relaxing royal blue, and then suddenly this diagonal screed of the names of all the TV shows in it in massive caps. Rented in what I can only describe as the drop of the dead donkey. Yes! Um, it's the nearest thing I've seen to a printed page that is actually screaming at me.
1: Well, TV Times books, that's all I can say. I doubt they put much thought into the cover of it, because they did things like, release least more or less contemporary to this, there was an album called ITV Themes performed by the Stanley Black Orchestra, which is the most miserable excuse for a TV Themes album I've ever owned. I think I actually asked for that as a Christmas present. It's just like... It's an actual orchestra. It's not even like a big band. Mm. You know, so you don't get unexpectedly groovy versions of Coronation Street or whatever. The bill is like done on like sort of
0: woodwind and xylophone almost... That's the last one you'd want to convert to acoustic instrumentation.
1: Incredibly lacklustre version of the highway theme. That's the most disappointing (laughs) thing ever. It's dreadful. And the cover of that is pretty ropey as well. But the cover does not do justice to the contents. And the important thing to say about this is, I discovered it through, there was a fanzine that I used to buy every time it came out. I can't say every month because it was so detailed it would sometimes miss its deadline. Called Time Screen which was mainly the work of a guy called Andrew Pixley, who a lot of you might know from writing the production notes for a lot of archive TV that's come out on DVD, and he works on a lot of documentaries and so on. He just had a fanzine then which would talk about things like Ace of Wands, quite often in complete lack of reference material, but he tried to find out everything he could about it. And he wrote a review of this book. That's the first I've heard of it. And what drew me in straight away was he mentioned the fact that otherwise your only option was Hallowell's Television Guide. <laughs> it's, a, it's only use event you see if you want to know how many episodes of Littlest Hobo were made. <laughs> Now, I've got Halliwell's television guide over there, and it writes up some things like Rising Damp and the Quatermass Serials are woeful, Terry Nation invented Doctor Who, all kinds of things like that. But this review is basically saying this book gets it right, and it's got all kinds of things you'll never have heard of. And even just like the brief description in this review of some of the contents, I thought, what is that? What's Pathfinders in Space? What's Undermined? What special branch? I don't know what any of these things are. What's public eye? I had to get it and I didn't have enough money to get it. And it was a long way away from... Because I'm unfortunate enough to my birthday in the middle of the year. So there's no hope of getting it apart from... Do you remember you supposed to go into libraries and say, can you request this book from another branch?
0: Yes, and it would take ages.
1: They did and it took ages and it came in and I copied almost all of it out by hand. That was all I could do with that. I didn't have much else to distract me as well. But somewhere I've still got. I didn't write down the synopses of things like the Tomorrow People. I might have done, where it was actually quite interesting. The show anyway. But you know, things like Target Luna. Somewhere I have the transmission dates and episode titles of that because of that book. For better or for worse, that really helped set me on the path that's led me to where I am today.
0: So it sounds like this book uh, embiggened your knowledge of <laughs> televisual uh,
1: derring do. Apart from Ski Boy. <laughs> uh,
0: absolutely. So, and obviously leaving Ski Boy out of this due to its uh, non appearance. What was the, the one show from that that you most wanted to track down?
1: it's difficult to say because I'd already seen bits of something like I had seen an episode of Ace of Wands I'd seen things like I'd seen bits of Sky you know other things because things did do the rounds and you know you went to any convention there was a limited amount of what they could show that being been bootleg the one I really wanted to see and it shouldn't really be the one I really wanted to see was a series called Big Bread with a Hog where it's a very late 60s crime drama with Peter Egan as a kind of cocky young dandy mod who wants to take over the London underworld the first episode, it's difficult describing this even now, it was only vaguely alluded to in the write up. It culminates in. Because he has a gang of, you know, equally sort of moddy types, and they try to break into a racket with some old fashioned East End dugs who, it's implied, get quite untoward one of his female accomplices after beating him up. He returns with some spirit assaults and chucks it in the face of one of the antagonists. You don't actually see very much. It's like, you know, women go, (gasps) hiding their face behind their hands and passers-by looking shocked. But it caused such an outcry that I believe some of the ICP region shoved it late into the schedules and may even have dropped it completely. It just sounded just amazing like you know this psychedelic crime drama from the late 60s i was desperate to see that it was a long long time i saw a clip on tv hell in 1992 it was a long time before i saw the actual show and it did live up to my expectations that was the big one really and also things like the first two series of ace of wands which no longer exist i remember reading those storylines and thinking i want to see them <laughs> Gideon's Way was one that fascinated me as well, which is actually quite a slow-moving police drama. But I found it odd that all the other ITC series were really well remembered, and that wasn't also the Secret Service. Gerry Anderson's famous misfire with Stanley Unwin as both live action and the puppet talking gobbledygook to confuse spies. I would say I've probably seen at least one episode of most of the things mentioned in it now, for one reason or another.
0: And what a different world that is to them. Well, all these shows sound like the kind of things they just wouldn't take a risk on these days, even in the days where Netflix are pumping out basically anything.
1: I think so, because I think some of them were... They kind of did throw ideas at the wall and see if they stuck. Some stuff in there is really outlandish. The Corridor People, which is a abstract 60s psychological thriller, think the Avengers, but even weirder. You know, you have, you have to look at The Prisoner as an example of something where... Imagine walking into a TV station with that now, you end up with something like the remake of The Prisoner from <laughs> 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 about 10 years ago. It was absolutely dreadful. There is this thing now. I mean, I do know that the in the wake of the success of Doctor Who, ITV looked at bringing back some of their old sci-fi properties. One of the ones discussed was Sapphire and Steel, And the reason it never came about was PJ Hammond, the creator, was told there had to be an origin story. And he's like, well, there's an origin story. They are just Sapphire and Steel. They just appear where there's damage to time and repair it. (laughs) They didn't gain their powers in (laughs) (laughs) an accident with
0: a watch or something.
1: Yeah. But, you know, there is an extent. There are adventurous programmes, but by and large they do have rules to adhere to. And I think in those days... There weren't so many rules as such. It was just you had to make it and it had to be broadcast. <laughs> there's that whole thing about, you know, the I can't remember which Doctor Who producer it was, but there's a DVD extra where he mentions the fact that people always read, you know, incredible motives into his choice of the programme. And he said, my only motivation was to make sure that there was something to go out at tea time on a Saturday. In those days, that's quite often what it was. You say The prison that was a rare thing of somebody with a driven vision most of them were just thinking how can we make a good program in the case of things like the baron not really succeeding okay so
0: next we go from a handy book to a handbook for graham young life isn't easy there are constant irritations and endless humiliations but Graham has an unusual hobby. I was very young when I realized I had a gift for chemistry. And the people who cross him. Why are you always sleeping mad here, Graham? There's
1: something about you I just don't like.
0: And the people who get on his nerves. That's a date, Graham. Are going to find out. Just one item today, Mr. Gertz. Being on the wrong side of Graham... The effects of antimony poisoning, i.e. vomiting and severe abdominal pain, are easily confused with a whole host of intestinal disorders. ...can leave a lot more than just a nasty taste in your mouth. Oh, blimey, I'm riley, really Fred. What the devil have you put in this tea? Ronald O'Keefe, a young New York accountant, succeeded in poisoning his secretary's lunchtime ham sandwiches with antimony. Because Graham is finding out the antidote to his problems... Pickle, Uncle Jack. ...is pure poison to everyone else. I had discovered my metier. I would be the greatest poisoner the world had ever seen. If I were you, I'd watch how you speak to me in future. Both of you. The Young Poisoner's Handbook. A distinct whiff of murder most foul about that clip. Tim, who's doing the killing? That was a film called
1: The Young Poisonous Handbook from 1995. The thing to get out of the way about this straight away, and it'll come back later as a very important point, is that it's actually based loosely on a real-life case, which was that of Graham Young, who was a schoolboy poisoner active sort of in the 60s and 70s. It's loosely based on his life, and that's really the reason that you can't see it now, was they based some of the supporting characters a little too closely on some people involved in the story, and I believe there was legal action, and that's why it's disappeared almost. It is in questionable taste, I would say, but it is a great film, and it's a shame that that had to be what happened to it. The people making it should have been more wary of what they were doing, but it is quite sad, really, because... It was quite an important thing for me because it's so intrinsically tied in with there used to be a cinema in Liverpool called the O51, which is above a club, and it was where they would just put on anything that wasn't on the one or two mainstream cinemas that were at that point. And that's where I saw Reservoir Dogs before you know it really took off. That's where I saw shortcuts, things like that. That's where I saw things like Russ Mayer films before the re-evaluation, you know, old films that were re-released that were getting be foreign language things like I remember I'm loving a film I saw there called Cold Fever I mean obviously that sort of thing you know your average picture even your average Odeon shows all of that now because there's just so much more capacity to show things but it knows that you had to go somewhere like that to see say the Hud took a proxy which is a Cowan Brothers film for crying out loud but that was the only place that was on and quite often me and you know the people I was friendly with around them would just go regardless of what was on just to see it I mean it might be that you saw something great like Johnny Swade which nobody remembers which is I think it was Brad Pitt's first starring film where he I think I'm right about this he plays somebody who's hit on the head by a Swade shoe and he becomes a sort of stylized rock and roller doesn't really tally with what he did later but equally you might see something like bad boy Bubby which I hated but then again you might see as we did once, Clerks which nobody knew what to expect from it but this was one where I think I just turned up there one day and I think also hanging round waiting to see what was on was my friend Andy Durrant and Vicky Gregory which has also been on this and we went and see this film and I remember thinking with the poster that looks good because it's got this kid with like sinister bubbling test tubes surrounded by a kind of adoring 60s family and it blew all of us away it starts in the very early 60s just before the arrival of the Beatles in fact without them mentioning it you can tell that's about to happen but it's all kind of like you know Craig Douglas records on the soundtrack and so on again this is a very difficult point to wrestle with Graham the main character is a very disturbed young man obsessed with poisons and some people like pushing the wrong way and he starts to think what would happen if I gave them X and Y? And it's very cleverly done so that there's kind of an extent to which you feel on his side. Which you shouldn't do, really. But it's not an accident of the film. That's deliberate. And if you know anything about the real case, you would not be on his side at all. It goes into that and he gets caught after his stepmother dies, goes into prison, there's some very bleak bits from a long prison stretch, where you don't know how long it is, and some fantastic acting in that, from Anthony his doctor who's trying to rehabilitate him, Charlie Creed Miles is a bunkmate, who's a soldier suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress, and he eventually hangs himself, and that's what kind of leads towards Graham being, you think he's being cured of his Problems, and then he's let back out in the early seventies. Amazing scene where he steps out into the street. You know, you don't know what time it is. Still in this kind of like very austere early sixties suit. His sister comes racing up now with long flicked hair, and also it should be pointed out a blanked out eye because he interfered with her makeup after she had to fight with him. She comes roaring up in a very seventies car, dressed in the very seventies way to pick him up while living in the past. By Jethro Tull is blurring out and you are just straight in again, that kind of just before glam rock era that sort of proggy era and it takes a very unpleasant turn then because he somehow through seeking employment winds up at a camera manufacture firm where he has to work with his old chemicals again, and it all leads to a very nasty climax. But it's the it's the use of fashions, it's the use of music. At a time when it was very much such so of people say, ah, half flares, and then there'd be a sitar <laughs> on the soundtrack. <laughs> all the records they picked in it, it's like bands like Curved Air and the Big Three and so on. That
0: it's not hits, it's things that are in the evoking era. Start talking with evoking era to the people that were in the era. Rather than yes, like exactly. Yeah, yeah, to show that era since. Yeah, like the way you always get incense and peppermints on uh... <laughs> footage of unrest on BBC Four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: or whenever Homer Simpson records his youth, it's the hustle. Yeah. <laughs> amazing that I've got this. I've got the soundtrack album here. Oh, which, uh, you... have a look at an amazing cover. Just describe it for the listeners.
0: Yeah, it's a very stark uh, photo. That it looks like something that would have been from the early two thousands in yeah. terms of uh, sort of film promotion. Mm. Yeah, it's just a, a, a handsome young man in black and white with a green bottle. That's the only yeah. bit of uh, the only bit of color on the whole thing. And his arms crossed
1: in the skull and crossbones poison pose. Yeah, uh, yep. that's the brilliant Hugh O'Connor, who is absolutely fantastic as Graham. Yes, um, yes, He's
0: been, uh, been in my left foot. My left foot. He's got on to be in uh, Chocolat and, yep. uh, and Killing Bono on the big screen.
1: <laughs> I've not seen Killing Bono, <laughs> I would quite like to see Killing Bono. <laughs>
0: he's also been in uh, Garrow's Law and Ripper Street on television, so he's, he's mm. kind of uh, his, his career has gone a certain path, shall we yeah. say. A certain, uh, <laughs> crimey mm. path this is i'm just uh looking over and this is the first time i've seen it looking over the uh, track mm. listing for the, the soundtrack really good really good got billy fury on there great stuff hoots mom by uh, lord rockingham yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> curved air is uh how's your turn great stuff green green grass at home oh, i'm sticking that one when i get back it's, uh, <laughs> i can see why it's disappeared because what you've just described i looked into graham young and there's two reasons I did that. Number one, I wanted to make sure that we were sort of um, covered from a total. Sort yes, of, well, yeah, yeah. this. And number two, true crime podcasts are huge these days. Yeah. But, yeah, it's uh, what you've just described. tracks incredibly closely to, mm. to to the life of Graham Young, the, the teacup murderer. And yeah. essentially it's a biopic of him.
1: I think it's times have changed a lot since then. We've lost that in some ways it's a good thing. That fascination with the, the macabre and weirdly amusing side of the history. I mean, I remember Jeremy Beadle once being asked on the radio, Why are you interested in true crime? And he said, it's nothing to do with the actual crime. It's nothing to do with the murderers. It's nothing to do with the robberies or whatever. It's the stories behind them are often things that you couldn't make up. And this really is something you couldn't make up. It's probably what it's based on. Written incidentally by Jeff
0: Rawl." Yes. who
1: probably better known around the time that the events in the film were happening, he was TV's Billy Liar in the disastrous TV version of Billy Liar, which, do not watch that. But, <laughs> and you'll find my thoughts on an episode of that elsewhere on my site, but it's also Plantagenet in Doctor Who in the frontiers, <laughs> <laughs> his, his most famous role, obviously. We've gone to a stage where things are more unpleasant and unamusingly macabre, unremittingly bleak, but because it's all made up, It's allowed, whereas when it impinges on reality, I think in some ways it's a good thing we've left that behind. But I don't think we've exactly replaced it with something more palatable.
0: One thing that uh, springs to mind is kind of this this sort of romanticisation of past criminal activity, yeah, and it all being a bit, um, I guess, quaint in Mm. its its portrayal. It almost smacks to me of that sort of. Worship of the craze and sort of East End yes. gangsters yeah, of the past. It's yeah. like kind of, you can, you can look on it almost with fondness mm. because it's not happening now. Do you think some of that might have been in play? I think so. It's like the thing, I think it's
1: like it's, it, these things can't get you because they've happened. I will say with this, there are a lot of straight face, true crime dramatisations around these days which I can't bring myself to watch. They Something about it feels... Voyeuristic in a way I'm not comfortable with. Whereas this, I'm going to sound like a complete hypocrite saying it's a great film, but it is. It's entertaining. It's exciting. It's funny. It's really, really funny in places, and it's really unpleasant, and unsettling in places. The problem is, that it's just not available anywhere. I think, I think it was shown on Channel Four once, and that's it. I'm led to believe some people have said there was a free newspaper DVD giveaway of it in the boom time of free newspaper DVD giveaways, which is where I got How to Get Head in Advertising, which nobody in their right mind would give a proper DVD release to, because it was sell to one person, and that would be me. But a couple of other people have told me that was hastily cancelled when things came to light about it, but it's because people have complained. The only way you can get hold of it, I mean, in America you can buy it, Germany, places like that. The only way you can get it now is the VHS, which weirdly, it doesn't go for very much in line, but I paid the shirt off my back for this at the time because it was a BFI release, I think, because they co-funded it. And obviously, the people I knew who saw it at the time have all got this VHS as well. You have to keep hold of it, even though it's useless now, because it's the only evidence that this film actually existed. In fact, it's got that film poster that drew me in on the cover.
0: Yes, for, for the listeners at home, I'm just looking at the front cover for the first yeah. time. And realising who's in it, it's Roger Lloyd-Pack.
1: <laughs> he does actually, off screen, he collapses at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the great Charlotte Coleman playing a sister, Winnie. It's understandable that this film has disappeared. It's entirely reasonable, but there's just that bit of me that still feels it's a little bit unfair. In a strange way, it's like the Morris Mitch the sketches from Fist of Fun had to be removed so they because Maurice Michener was a boy who was supposedly scared of Captain Hook and his parents were suing a theatre. The whole joke was that Rich made jokes about him all the time. <laughs> and Stu would be saying, you're a grown man, <laughs> picking on a boy. Yeah, he's yeah, Morris Mitchener, and he scared, Stu. <laughs> but they they couldn't find Morris Michener to get clearance. So possibly the most fondly remember bit of Fist of Fun across several episodes had to be cut out. It's kind of like that. It's like, they are decisions that aren't for the people who will be interested in seeing it. Unless it showed up on Netflix and was on the front page, usurping Stranger Things or something. I don't think many people are going to look for this film unless they know of it's existence. So that's kind of a decision out of their reach. It's always I always remember Steve Punk getting angry about... There were repeats of the Mary White House experience, because that's some jokes. And he used the phrase but the people who like the programme have been shortchanged by people who don't want to watch it. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I get there's a sensitivity issue here. It's a difficult... I can't come up with an answer for this, whereas I can about Morris Mitch there. He's just too scared to be on DVD. <laughs> It might poke him in the eye. It might dazzle him when the light reflects on it. He might see some
0: colours. But... Well, I was about to say, I'll, I'll rush out and see it, based on <laughs> that... Uh, assessment but I can't. Well so if, if only the O five one was still open they'd probably have it like in the revival
1: by now, but <laughs> that was a sad day when that closed. But for anyone who's read Cornell thinking about me, that's where the Clockwork Orange incident happened with the army okay. of droogs <laughs> <laughs> demanding to be let in to see the flicker show. <laughs> and he ran away when the Millicents appeared.
0: Just going back to that newspaper D V D giveaway you were talking mm. about, would that have been around two thousand and five? Probably, yes, yeah. Okay, I might be able to answer why that didn't wind up coming out then. Uh, In November 2005, a 16-year-old Japanese schoolgirl was arrested for poisoning her mother with thallium. She claimed to be fascinated by Graham Young and had seen this film, and kept an online blog similar to Young's diary recording dosage and reactions. So it could be the fact that there was a copycat, certainly in recent memory at that stage, that put the kibosh on that release.
1: Okay, I knew I should have picked Solitaire for two. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I
0: can't like to withdraw that whole last section now. Right, well, I don't think I can write a link that, that, that does these two pieces justice. So I'll just, uh, I'll just revert to Python form and say, now for something completely different. Ayo, hey, T-Roney, I really like this guy, but he's just too blind to see it. For real, Coco? Yeah, what you think about that? I don't know. Sing it to him, Coco. Yeah, Liam, I'ma do that. I'ma let him know that I ain't going nowhere. And my love is gonna be right here. For real, though. For real, Got one
1: tim care to fill us in yeah a couple of people listening might be thinking that sounds like right here by swv but doesn't sound like it at all and the reason is this is actually the original version of it from 1992 it's been almost completely erased from history because obviously you're all familiar with the human nature remix of it with the michael jackson samples i think he actually appears in the video doesn't he where they're all swanning around in kind of supermodel gear with beach bum musicians and I think they ride horses at one point and you know it's amazing bliss out proto trip hop neo motown ballad and originally as yes, you can hear it, it's like a proper urban love song with talky rap bits as well and in the video they were wearing backwards baseball caps cycling shorts and bikini tops which obviously I wasn't especially averse to but I loved the original of right here and it seems to be almost completely erased from history and the other thing is that it was so extensively made over for the remix version, that Tows Johnson from the band who co wrote the song lost their co writer credit for the Human Nature remix because it was that different that technically she had no involvement with writing it.
0: That's, That's- ridiculous. I mean, I've, I've got to say, I didn't even realise that that wasn't the original. And Nobody realises it <laughs> until you shared this with me. And the original is way better, Just, just ridiculously better. And that's even leaving aside the uh, hmm. the stench of Michael Jackson. And that's twice now I've had to mention it in this, <laughs> this one episode. Well, that's,
1: yeah, I mean, SWV, obviously, that stands for Sisters with Voices, which, when you think about it, that's a name much more suited to a, you know, a sassy gang, like, you know, dissing men on street corners than it is. stylized soul balladeers, which is what they became. I still like the Human Nature remix, but... I wish this was better known. I wish this came... I remember it being on MTV a lot when it came out. And it was constantly requested on... Do you remember the box, the cable channel? Yes, yes. yes. It was Um, one of those ones that, obviously, some... I I would say a man had phoned up and put it on five times in a row. We won't speculate on the reasons for that.
0: I remember trying to get a video on that once and just after three hours falling asleep mm. with it having not been played I'll tell you what it was it was so why so sad by the Mad Extreme Preachers and <laughs> I hadn't heard it before I was mm. desperate to hear it and yeah me, me and my mate rang up the box yeah. I never saw the bloody thing <laughs> well I remember
1: actually phoning up it was when it first started like the take that videos were like so overused I think they must have played them in from VHS actually but they started to wear out you know because I'm that many times <laughs> in the day I remember the start of I found happiness going <laughs> a million love songs it just looked like it looked like an expressionist art video for the late 70s the kind of thing you might have seen like the last thing on bbc2 you know introduced by richard o'brien or something but when the kids who were requesting all that had gone to bed it was quite easy to get things like i remember phoning up for because you couldn't see these videos in those days a video for you're in the Bad Way by St Etienne, I think I requested a Black Sheep video as well. So I didn't know what Black Sheep looked like, what a different world that was. Walking through Syrah by Ned to Dusty, which I don't think it was even a single, but the video was on the box, but somewhere sort <laughs> of VHS of those, and yeah, SWV, the original right here, did used to turn up on there a lot. So it wasn't unknown at the time, but I'm not even sure... It probably is now because probably the deluxe reissue, but I'm fairly sure they bumped it from It's About Time, the debut album that was on, in favour of the remix when the remix came out. So I think for years you couldn't actually get it unless you had the original version of the album or a single. And it's quite sad as well because that was a time when it was a bit of a renaissance for female soul in that sense that, you know, the overarching thing around them was obviously there was Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, which is not soul really, and it's number one forever. But you had things like "I Love Your Smile" by Shanice coming up around that time. Queen Latifah, I, I call elements of rap soul. All kinds of people like that. Sort of, and this was part of that. And then it became something else. It was a bit for me. It was a, the contrast between the two was a bit like when TLC did "Waterfalls," and I thought, "That's not ain't too proud to beg, is
0: it?" Was this around the time of On Vogue as well?
1: Yes, it was. Yeah, I think these really took a lot of cues from On Vogue. Obviously, there were a lot more street than on Vogue who could literally have been in Vogue and um, they'd used to Vogue a lot as well. But they were very aptly named, but, weren't they? But, so, so it wasn't just a clever name then. <laughs> well, the, the most amazing
0: thing about on Vogue was that they did a cover of free, your mind and your ass will follow, and had a hit with it. I did like that. That was impressively mm. shouty for a pop band, that one. Yeah. And, uh, a lot, lot of oomph behind that one. <laughs>
1: It's it's much better than, as we've been recently reminded of by the BBC or Top of the Pops repeat, Will Downing's vocal version of A Love Supreme. You know, John Coltrane's avant-garde, world music, groundbreaking jazz classic. Previously inspired Lou Reed. It's by the birds to do Eight Miles High. And so he turns into like a slinky soul palette <laughs> in the 80s. Again, my thing seems to be about things that were everywhere for a while and then were unavailable for a long time. Not just through lack of interest, through peculiar reasons. And this was just yet another one. I mean, it's like I mentioned earlier, I Know by Blur, which I think they left that off. Well, the same goes for pop scene. They left it off the album in the kind of disgruntlement to the fact that nobody bought it as a single and for years they weren't available for that reason
0: it's unfortunate for swv though had they stuck with the original history might remember them a, a bit more kindly we've obviously alluded to human nature by michael jackson kind of elements of that being woven into the song to make the more mm. uh, well-remembered version unfortunately it was released in july 1993 and two months after that, Evan Chandler brought proceedings against Jackson for the alleged sexual abuse of his son, Jordan. It was the worst possible move at the worst possible time, which they couldn't have predicted.
1: Yeah, I don't remember an official response to that, but do you know what it might be a bit like? It, it might be a bit like somebody spending years and years and years working on the book on comedy on Radio 1. And to launch it, and to look in the newspaper that day and see that a scrawny old bastard and you posthumously accused of crap. Is this a little bit like that? You know, what,
0: Boris Johnson?
1: Uh, close, yeah. I mean, that is a difficult position to be in. I'm not saying quite on the same level as SWV, but
0: when things like that happen, yeah, I don't recall how they cope with that at the time. So I think we can say that the remix of uh, that song, despite being more commercially successful, is not a quality product in her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and since it ain't tipped up... It ain't in your last selection (laughs) Tip top on the radio Tip top Proofy Wednesday show If I didn't totally give it away, then that clip has. Tim, put us out of our misery.
1: Okay, well that was one of the jingles from Radio Tip Top, which is a fictional radio station run by the Ginger Prince and Kit Tempo, which for a couple of years in the mid-90s was quite a big thing. And it had a weekly slot on Radio 1. As well as they had a column in Select. There were all kinds of daytime TV shows. I think people, when they remember it, think, what the hell was that? (laughs) Well, it was kind of part of the, you know, hand-in-hand with the Britpop thing. There was the whole lounge corps, easy listening thing. And there were all these characters that, like, flowers appeared and so on. And these were DJs harking back to kind of the... Sort of harking back to pirate radio because they dressed very sharply when because they did stuff on TV as well and in print. You know, proper Carnaby Street gear. They played a lot of you know groovy sixties records and Britpop stuff as well, and did very odd kind of like pastiche sixties style presenting between them. They were sponsored by the fictional Corsair magazine. Their studio staff were kind of like air stewardesses, <laughs> push up the faders and sing-song voices and so on. I found it hilarious and I loved the music as well. It was one of those things where that just sort of disappeared overnight. Now, I think this was around the sort of time of the, you know, the mass mourning over Diana and so on. But all of the stuff, you know, the kind of likeably ironic retro look back stuff just went and Radio Tip Top just disappeared almost overnight I mean do you remember it at all
0: I remember more of the column from Select than I Mm. do of the radio show but I did hear the radio show a few Mm. times I wasn't quite sure of its place in history I suppose whether it was one of those roads less travelled a bit like Moose I suppose but it it seems to have uh, from the research I've done it seems to have run like you say almost arm in arm with Brick Pop for a little while Whereas I, I, I had assumed that Britpop had just killed it off. Well, there's a long
1: story behind it, because I, I, the first thing I heard about it was, was a feature in Select about it being a pirate radio station, where obviously they... I mean, they were really funny guys, Kid Tempo and the Ginger Prince. And they were obviously one step ahead of whoever was interviewing them for Select because they were saying about watching Music Policy, just what of the contemporary bands? And I can't remember which one of them it was. But one of them said, oh, yes, yeah, there's this new band from just outside London and all their songs are written by the lead singer Robert and they're called The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Made me laugh out loud. But it was a number of years before it hurt. I think they turned up in Select with a regular column first and then showed up on Radio 1. And then there was the TV pilot and stuff like that, the series on Paramount Comedy. But when I did Fun at War*, History of Comedy on Radio 1, I managed to track both of them down, which was difficult, because they didn't give their names on Earth. It was by chance, I thought, to ask somebody else who was working at Radio 1 around that time, if he knew what either of them were called, he still had the Ginger Prince's phone number. Oh. So I managed to get in touch with them that way. I mean, they'd moved on to other careers since then, because when it ended. It ended. That was it. But they had contacts in the industry, so they moved into production and so on. But it did start as a pirate station because they were kind of fed up of how things had gone very American. I don't use that in a xenophobic way, but in the wake of Nirvana and also Beverly Hills, ninety two one zero. Watered down hip hop, Michael Jackson's, what what album was that? Was that dangerous?
0: Yeah. Pop
1: tarts, yeah. things like that. And they were kind of thinking, do you remember when the radio used to be? Uh, they, they said their model was what Radio 2 used to be when they were young. These slightly older pop songs, like just, you know, the Hollies and so on, just blaring out at you all day. You know, obviously the obvious thing to do around them would have been to hark back to the post punk era, but obviously Simon Munner, who was already doing Alan Parker, Urban Warrior, who was already on Radio 1 playing that sort of records. I don't know whether that was a conscious factor in their decision but they went back to this kind of pirate radio style and they actually did it. They claimed from the back of an ice cream van because nobody would suspect they were in there and it became quite a big thing with like the emerging Britpop scene. People forget it didn't start with Blur and Oasis. It had quite origins in really in this club called Blow Up which is in Laurel Tree in London which obviously Andy Lewis previous guest on this very heavily involved as a DJ Paul Putner was a regular there who's been on as well and um, you know it was all about people discovering these groovy records and it was kind of it developed I don't think they were aware of that but it developed sort of in tandem with that and so it was perfectly placed to catch the Britpop mood and obviously when Radio 1 had their comedy slots at that point which some worked and some didn't I mean when they put Simon Munnery in the DJ slot it didn't really work There was bits of last week's radio which is a good idea but it didn't really work over an hour the Zed magazine which is parody of Q which was funny in places but as Richard Easter who was a star told me you know an hour of that material having to come up with that a week is not easy and it didn't always work but you had the things that worked, you had Chris Morris, you had Liam Herring, Armando Yanucci, and I would say Radio Tip Top. I think it slotted perfectly into Radio 1 at that point if You got the joke, it was hilarious. I mean, I remember one that people always mention is they do the tip top chart because all kinds of features like it was a tip top lounge where they'd like play like a Bridget Bardot record with like a, an audience, like sort of you know, a cafe audience picking up cups and so on over it as if they were playing live. There was Blinder, who were a pub rock band, they did covers of stuff in the charts, like on the radio tip top single, the B side is Blinder to Spaceman by Babylon Sue. <laughs> yeah, they always had the tip top chart, and there was. Always, He's he stuck at 12, he's stuck with you, which you are listen the news. That was every week. I loved that. You know, they had that level of humour just right. It was kind of a Harry Hill style thing, but in the 60s pre-psychedelic framework. It's really funny, they had a pilot on Channel 4 which... That is on now on YouTube. you look at the comments under that, a number of people say, oh my God, I saw this. I didn't know what it was. I was freaked out by it. It was in the slot that normally the word was in. Ah, that and makes was, sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: It's eye hurting. I'll say that much. And they, they show up in Loaded quite a lot in those kind of World Cup of features. Quite often they be contestants in that. They had the single, which I've got here, which is a cover of Pop Music by M. Autographed by the two of them, I'm quite proud to say. Yeah. They also presented a slot on Paramount Comedy, which they sort of linked archive kind of comedy shows with the kind of radio tip top bits done visually, which is where I first saw Lancelot Link's Secret Chimp.
0: I believe I saw some of that as well. Yeah. When we, very early on, when we had cable mm. TV. Yeah, uh, and of course, Lancelot, Link, uh, you've got a you've got a story about that that maybe we should leave off of this. Yes, it's only been
1: mentioned in, in another edition, actually, but, but yeah, I then found out as well that it's a very weird story about, they were invited to a big radio conference by Radio One to talk about how well, sort of independent productions, because they produced it themselves, their own production company, worked within the framework of Radio One, and then somebody said, well, we're having this reshuffle and Chris Evans is leaving and, you know, we're moving people around and Mark and Lars had a disastrous breakfast stint and they said, this might sound like a crazy idea, but you, do you want to try doing a pilot for the afternoon show? Somebody obviously sensed that kind of Radio 2 style in it and thought, maybe we could harness that. They recorded the pilot and nobody ever said anything more to them about it. Oh. That was the end of Radio Tip Top, basically. But I loved it. Someone once said to me, It's like these not just read your thoughts, but they put them on the radio. Which you think is entirely fair. It's the sort of program that only have happened around then, though. In the 90s, you did get Radio 1 with a channel that really pushed the boat out with radio. Because, you know, there were obviously there was a Chris Morris music show, there was Blue Jam. There were all kinds of unusual angular shows that they tried. Some of them caught on and some of them didn't. Radio Tip Top lasted, I think, nearly three years. I can't see that really having been on at any other time. I'm glad it was. And the thing was, I actually discovered the records through it as well. I just mentioned Bridget Bardot in the Tip Top Lounge singing Unis Dior de Plage, which, even before i had heard Harley Davidson, which is the big Bridget Bardot cult single... I've been thinking, I've got to find that record somewhere. I didn't even know what that was called because they didn't say what it was She was just singing about playing backgammon underwater or whatever it is. But you know, they did introduce people to records as well. as part of it. It was just that perfect collision of time, place and loud ties. <laughs> so,
0: it, it's very, as well, cardigans adjacent, which means we've come full yes, circle yes. In, this, uh, in this episode.
1: Do you know what? I really should have picked the A camp album. <laughs> That's going to be nothing to any non-cardigans fans. Hey, I, I Can Buy
0: You is a jam. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, what, I would have been better picking that many <laughs> <laughs> We'll look back on that with a mixture of shame and... But what's that thing that's
1: less shame? (laughs) Word!
0: (laughs) Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having (laughs) me.
1: one by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details at timworthington.org